Happy to be here tonight to open up the scriptures with you. The words found in tonight's text come from a familiar portion of scripture, uh, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, near the Sea of Galilee around 2,000 years ago. The Sermon on the Mount, as it's found in Matthew chapter 5, is where we find these words. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, we'll look at these words from our Lord and its implications for true followers of Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. The title for the message is Salt and Light. And before we get to it, we need to see the words our Lord spoke preceding this, that has led up to this point. A large multitude were around him, and so he went up on a mountain, as it says there in verse 1. And his disciples followed him, and they gathered before him, and Jesus sat. And as he was seated, he began to speak the kingdom of heaven to them. His message began with what, what kind of people make up the kingdom of heaven. It must be said when we are talking about the Beatitudes, those verses that follow that, or for anyone who knows Christ, displays these characteristics. These are not just for the super spiritual, if there is such a thing, or just for pastors, but for all believers. The degree in which believers manifest these traits will vary, but it will nonetheless be present. I must also say one more thing before we get to our text, and I think it's important, that these characteristics in the Beatitudes that are outlined here are supernaturally given by God. By grace. We are not born with these characteristics. There are some who might on the outside appear to have natural tendencies towards meekness and so forth. But truly God-given, no one is born this way. For it's only when God reveals to us our depravity and helplessness that by the Holy Spirit we are made new. We now have eyes open to see Christ and His kingdom. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Christ is impressing upon them now. And by a 2,000 years later to us. The character of citizens in the kingdom of heaven. You see, the first beatitude ends with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes through a list. And then in verse 10, he ends with the same thing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christ is showing us that we belong to a different realm. That we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ and live according to his rule. And while the righteousness that makes us fit for this kingdom is not our own, but the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we are nonetheless made new and we can live in this kingdom. And belonging to this kingdom comes with great responsibility, as we'll see. And so in verse 13, we start to see the implications of our citizenship, our purpose in this world. And so I'll begin reading in verse 13. 
It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the, if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. This is a reality for every follower of Christ. You are, not should be or will one day be, you are. It's ongoing, it's now, it's present, it continues. It doesn't matter the spiritual age of the disciple. It's a reality that he or she is the salt of the earth. Not the government, not the community leaders, the entertainers of the world, the influencers, but you. The ones who are poor in spirit, who mourn over their sin, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are peacemakers, those who are persecuted. These are the ones whom the Lord is addressing. Salt is a precious thing. It purifies, cleanses, flavors. It preserves. It is one of the oldest valued commodities. There are thousands of uses for salt. Roman soldiers would even sometimes get paid in salt. I think that probably gave rise to the expression, he isn't worth his salt. One could get lost when understanding the metaphor here, though. But in the hearing of Jesus' disciples, they would certainly understand this in probably its basic sense. That it, it, it acts as a preservative or a seasoning. For ever since the fall of man, the world is decaying. God said before the flood that the thoughts and intentions of man are always evil. Wickedness and evil will increase as man has opportunity. The world, in a sense, is advancing in technology, in medicine. But the spiritual state of the world is decaying. Even though technology has improved, man's nature has not. Man's knowledge has improved, but morality has not. Man's accomplishments abound, but there is no true peace and satisfaction with it. So when he says, you are the salt of the earth, he is saying that kingdom citizens, with their gospel message and lives, will have a profound impact on the world. It is a matter of fact. Christianity is to life what salt <clears throat> is to food. Salt is essential to human life. The world cannot go on without salt. Disciples of Christ are no less essential. God uses visible and physical means to communicate truth. And he has chosen to use us. We see this even in an earthly sense, in a broad sense. When we think of God's common grace, we could just start there. Christians have started many things that are considered good. Blessings. Hospitals. Many were started or, or founded by Christians. Orphanage. Orphanages were put in place by many Christians and missionaries. Food banks, etc. Mercy, mercy ministry in general 
has its origin from the Scripture. And most of all, the gospel message that we herald affects the very soul of mankind and brings mankind out of darkness into light. You are the salt of the earth. And our conduct, which is a main focus in this text, lives alongside that gospel message. We are followers of Christ, and we should seek to imitate him. Being salt means that we don't live the Christian life in isolation. And that's a major point of these verses. Paul said in Colossians, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How important is the tongue? The tongue is evil. We are called to season our speech with salt, giving grace to the world through it. Its application is critical because anyone who is blessed to be in the kingdom of heaven has an impact on society through the gospel and will give grace to the world who is dying. But what happens when Christians don't walk by the Spirit? He goes on to say, But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Alongside the preserving quality of salt, we see it gives flavor. How important is salt to the food we eat? Salt makes anything bland, instantly palatable. The Greeks sometimes called salt grace. They called it divine because it was so highly favored. Likewise, the, the flavor, if you will, of Christians should increase the flavor of life for many in the world. A true joy that is infectious, a true sense of purpose and meaning will make an influence on others. But losing its flavor, as it says here, simply means to lose its purpose. To not be used for how it's meant to be used. Salt has a purpose. And if it loses its flavor, it, it no longer serves a purpose. There are many different words possibly in your translation that, is transla- that we have that's, that taste is translated. You might have taste, tasteless, flavor, saltiness, savor. Whatever word you have there, it's important to know that the word literally means to be foolish. It's the same word used in Romans 1.22 that says, Professing to be wise, they became fools. It's interesting, even in our day, even in our own vernacular, when something we see something or someone who is being vulgar or inappropriate, we might say, they have no taste. They're tasteless. Matthew Henry said, quote, Christ sent forth his disciples by their lives and doctrines to season it with knowledge and grace, and so to render it acceptable to God. The church is to act as a seasoning and preserver. One, one speck of salt won't do it, however. It requires the whole shaker, as it were. But he warns that if we are not flavoring the world or being salt to the earth, we are essentially useless to the kingdom of heaven. It is good for nothing. We know that not all men will respond positively to the church. We know that. Christ is our supreme example of that. He is the supreme example of being salt to the earth, and he was crucified. Yet others will respond to it. 
If we fail to be salt to the earth, we are doing a disservice to our Lord. But what gets in the way? How does salt lose its flavor? What renders us useless? Earthly mindedness? The burdens and cares of the world? Fear? The love of money? A whole host of other things render us useless. Separating ourselves from others is another one. Living in isolation. You can't help but to look at the church in our day and see it's lost its flavor because it looks too much like the world. And it's hard to make a distinction between the two. It was brought up in our prayer request. People searching for churches. It's an indictment that we have to drive so far away to find a church. Salt that isn't touching anything is useless. So we must be involved. At the same time, we must be distinct. Doesn't mean we have to be stiffs out there. We can enjoy the things of the earth. But when it comes in conflict with the message of Christ, we submit to Christ. There must be something different about us that is heavenly. Not simply just morality outwardly, but the gospel that changes from within. The Beatitudes are contrary to the world. Christ came and turned the world upside down. And the Beatitudes are a supreme example of that. It is not natural to us. Therefore, we will be different, or should be different to some degree. And we will do various things in each of our lives. This is going to look different for each of us. But consider what it is you can do. What is your gift? What season in life are you in where you can serve the Lord? By serving the people in your life through word and deed. To be in the world, but not of it. And he goes on in verses 14 and 15. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. The second metaphor used to describe our witness as disciples is light. He uses two ways in which light is used in the sense of a city on a hill and from a lamp on a lampstand. Again, he's echoing the same message. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven will manifest light. So at this point, you, there could be some who might need to look inward here and consider their own lives. Because he makes it abundantly clear that they will manifest light. Light is a prominent theme in the scripture, starting all the way in the beginning. The first recorded words of God are found in Genesis 1-3, where God spoke into a dark world and said, let there be light. Light is a symbol of God's presence, his holiness, his perfection. Isaiah 49.6 says of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Light is illumination. It exposes the darkness. Darkness can't overcome even the tiniest, dimmest bit of light. It can't overcome it. But again we see, you are the light of the world. If you think about it, it's one of the most amazing statements in the Bible. You are the light of the world. Because we know that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. 
and that Christ said of himself, I am the light of the world. But then he goes on to say, he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We are the lesser light of the great light. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are called to live in light of that. <clears throat> but we don't naturally possess any light in ourselves. I think it was Donald Gray Barnhouse who had a, a good illustration about this and said, quote, that when Christ was in the world, he was like the shining sun that is here in the day and gone at night. When the sun sets, the moon comes up. The moon, which is the church, shines, but not with its own light, it shines with reflected light. And in Ephesians 5.8, we have just one example of many where it says, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And it is from this union with Christ that we are able to illuminate anything at all. I've also heard it said that it's kind of like a watermark on a piece of paper. A watermark, uh, that faint design in paper that is only visible when you hold it up to the light. And what the mark typically identifies when you hold it up to the light is its maker. Where did it come from? And that's what we're getting at. That Jesus might be seen through us. Our aims, desires, speech, conduct are all aspects of this light. This light that we shine is also the word of God that saves and sanctifies. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Word and deed, they go together. They proceed from a changed heart and mind. There will be some who you will attract by the beauty in your life. God will use that. And it's so important because the whole world lies in darkness. The world has no fear of God. The world loves its own sin. It mocks judgment. It rejects Christ. It hates righteousness. And we should pity its condition, lest we forget that we were once part of that kingdom of darkness. And it's no wonder that the scripture says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. For he deceives many. But the darkness is attractive because nobody wants the light to expose them. When you open the curtains, the sunlight will expose the smudges and dirt on the windows, the countertops. John 3, 19 through 20 says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Thus his works should be exposed. Jesus said in John 7, The world hates me because I testify that his works are evil. So even though mankind loves the darkness and hates the light, we are still called to shine it because they need it. Jesus said of John the Baptist, he was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. And even though most of us are just your typical average man or woman, we are nonetheless given this great privilege. Remember, he said this to fishermen 
when he spoke these words, he was talking to fishermen, to tax collectors, just to everyday people. And you, accountant, plumber, security guard, farmer, stay-at-home mom, if you're in Christ, you are the light of the world. And that is an indisputable fact. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. It might stretch our thinking a bit in our modern context because we have light so readily available and we can forget how dark nature is. It can be. Cities used to be built, if they could, on hills because being higher up, they could radiate light for farther distances. It relieves just a little bit of that darkness. Other than the moon and stars, it would reflect off the clouds and just give glimpses of light, hints of it. We, see, we can see skylines for miles away. It can't be hidden, the scripture says. Believers have a light to shine. Some have a light that shines brighter by God's grace. But even a dim light is useful. Darkness cannot overcome it, as I said earlier. Even the dim. However, as it says in verse 15, to hide it would be unthinkable. Because to hide the light would defeat its purpose. Look what it says. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. You sung this, you've sung the song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, hide it under a bushel. No. A lamp was usually like a shallow bowl with a little wick and it would be placed on a table and it would give light to everyone in the house. It wouldn't be moved around like a torch. It would stay there to give light to everyone. So when we, see that, so when we think about lighting a lamp, we're doing something intentionally for a purpose. No one would ever light a lamp and then stick it under a basket. That would be absurd. It's likewise, and that's what Jesus is saying here, it's likewise absurd for a follower of the Lord Jesus to remain isolated or worldly and to not shine his or her light. The purpose of the believer's life is to live for Christ, to show people Christ, to point people to Christ. Perhaps the simple meaning of hiding it in our context would be just to sit on the sidelines. We aren't in the game. We gather on Sunday mornings, go home for the rest of the week, and do nothing else for the kingdom of God. We keep to ourselves. We don't give any indication at all that we possess the light of life. Our deeds resemble the darkness rather than the light. We keep silent and are afraid to do anything. It can happen. Which is why we consider these passages tonight. May God help us. And in verse 16, we see the desired effect of all this. The glory of God. The glory of God is the ultimate end to the means that he employs in all things. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, let your light shine in such a way. There is a way that's right and good, and there is a way that isn't. And this is where we need to consider these words carefully. The word used here for glorify is where we get our word for doxology. Giving praise to God. 
it can be easy to fall into pharisaical behavior in this regard by acting in such a way that we receive the praise of men. Even if the deeds are outwardly righteous and good, Jesus would go on later in this sermon to talk about the hypocrites. The world already charges believers with hypocrisy. Unfortunately, a lot of the time the charge is true. A lot of the time it's unwarranted, but sometimes it's true. The word good here means more than just moral good. It has to do with aesthetically good, even. Lovely, helpful, beautiful, pleasing to the eye or useful, even. But if we are shining our light in such a way that others will look past us onto something higher and better, recognizing that something outside of us has gotten hold of us, that glorifies God. He must increase, I must decrease, as John the Baptist said. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. We should never discount the importance of good works. Something we, in our tradition, needs to consider sometimes. That they're important. Of course we keep them in their proper category. They are not the grounds of justification. They do not merit salvation. But they are always with us. We are saved by grace through faith, but, as Paul told the Ephesians, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. To say that believers are the salt of the earth and light of the world really is an amazing thing to consider. It's a privilege. But with it, it comes responsibility. We have citizenship in heaven. And we have orders. Surely we can come away from this passage of Scripture with this. The believer is a lighthouse to a dark world. And salt that preserves the decay of the world and seasons its joyless inhabitants. We are called to be a guiding star, a, joy, a joyful and cheerful people, so that others will see us and say, who are you? What happened to you? I once knew you and you weren't like this. For some, they may need to ask the Lord to rekindle a burning flame that's going out so others may see it. For the glory of God, be salt and light to someone in your life. Because at some point, somebody was salt and light for you. Whatever lot or situation we find ourselves in, there is someone that we can serve in this way. But don't be burdened by this. We can't do this on our own. We're not told to. We live in the Spirit by faith in the Son of God. We pray to Him. We hear His Word and depend on Him. We have the church to encourage one another 
and we have the hope of eternal life. Rest in that and live according to the words in this text. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your kindness. That you give us such a great responsibility, an awesome responsibility to serve you by serving others. Help us now, Lord, to be salt and light to the world as you have called us to be. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.